Welcome to the Leadership Playbook, the show where successful leaders share what they learn to get to where they are. This podcast is an offshoot of the Albers Executive Speaker Series. And it's brought to you by RSMUS LLP, the nation's leading provider of assurance, tax, and consulting services focused on the middle market. I'm your host, Joe Phillips, the Dean of Seattle University's Albers School of Business and Economics. Welcome to this edition of the Albers Executive Speaker Series, which will be the final chapter of this year's Leadership Playbook podcast series, brought to you by Seattle University's Albers School of Business and Economics. I'm Joe Phillips. I'm Dean of the Albers School. It's my pleasure to be your host and welcome all of you. Today, we put the spotlight on Seattle University President Father Steve Sundborg, who is retiring next month after 24 years as university president. Father Steve has always been a great supporter of the Speaker Series and the Albers School, and we wanted to make sure our final event of the series was under his watch. All 19 years of the series have been under Father Steve's term as president. In retiring, Father Steve is leaving a remarkable legacy at our university. Among his many accomplishments are signature programs such as the Seattle U Youth Initiative and the Center for Community Engagement. He has overseen the creation of a distinctive campus infrastructure that includes our student center, Sullivan Hall, the home of our School of Law, Lemieux Library and McGoldrick Learning Commons, and the new Jim and Janet Senegal Center for Science and Innovation. He is also the president who returned Seattle U to Division I Athletics. Joining us this afternoon as panelists are the first three chairs of the Seattle U Board of Trustees during Father Steve's tenure, his first 12 years to be precise. J.P. Morgan Chase Chair of the Pacific Northwest, Phyllis Campbell, Costco Wholesale Co-Founder Jim Senegal, and Ignition Partners Founding Partner Steve Hooper. We're so grateful they could join us today to have this conversation with Father Steve. So thank you so much, Jim, Steve, and Phyllis. And Father Steve, thank you so much for being with us and being the featured guest in the last speaker series event to occur during your time as president. This panel will be recorded and released as the final episode of the Leadership Playbook Spring 2021 season. Check out all the episodes at leadershipplaybook.org or search for the Leadership Playbook podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. So this afternoon, our plan is for our panelists to do most of the questioning, but I will start off with the first question to our panelists. Namely, tell us about your connection with Father Steve and your first meeting with him. So Phyllis, can you go first, please? Well, thank you so much, Joe, and thanks to everybody who's joining us today. It's my privilege to be a part of this panel. So I was very privileged, as you said, to be a chair of the Board of Trustees following Steve Hooper. But people often ask me, what's your connection to CLU? You didn't go there. You, how did you know Father Steve? And so my quick personal story is this. I was sitting next to him right after he agreed to be president of Seattle University in a private home at a dinner. And so I said to him, you know, I have not met you and I really know a lot about CLU, but I didn't go there. And about the only connection I have to the Jesuits is my first cousin is a Jesuit. He's been in Zambia most of his career. You may or may not know him. And his name is Ron Hidaka. And he said, Ron Hidaka, that's my best friend. We went through seminary together. And so it really did start a wonderful personal relationship because Ron is somebody I've admired my whole life, knowing that he went into the Jesuits and he has spent most of his career in Zambia building schools in a small village and helping with that. So with that, Steve and I had a great personal connection and 
you know, when it came time really to serve on the board of trustees, as I often joke, between my cousin, Father Ron and Father Steve, I didn't have a prayer because they certainly put not just Catholic guilt on me, but Jesuit Catholic guilt to serve. So I answered the call and it has been really my privilege and honor. Thank you. Steve, you want to go next? Sure. Thank you, Joe. And thank you again for inviting me to be part of this. My first meeting with Father Steve was in December of 1996. I was on the board of trustees at the time. I was not on the search committee, but the then chair, John Ellis, asked several of us to just do a telephonic interview. Zoom didn't exist back in those days. So I had a telephonic interview with Father Steve for my first meeting. And I remember asking him very, very carefully about how he deals with stress and how he sleeps at night, because as the president of the university, I don't think he's going to sleep very well. So that began our relationship. And in his very first gala, following that, uh, Kathy Beth and I were the hosts of Father Steve's very first gala. So we go back 25 years, consider him a very, very close uh, personal friend. So that's my connection with Father Steve. Great. Thank you. And Jim Senegal. Thank you, Joe, for inviting me to participate. I was part of the search committee, or at least I thought I was part of the search committee that uh, was seeking the replacement for uh, Father Sullivan. And, you know, we knew what we were looking for. We had to find somebody that was a strong advocate for education, had the management skills to handle a big budget that was involved, the leadership skills that were necessary to lead such a complex operation, and, of course, the Jesuit ethos. And we thought we had that identified in Father Steve. But there was one question that was kind of milling around with all of the trustees, which is, how good is this guy going to be in raising money? Because it's a very important part of the job. <laughs> and I got to tell you something, we hit the lotto here because he did a fantastic job. He has been enthusiastic and affected at every level of this throughout the years. So effective that I've tried to change my cell phone number three times now. <laughs> <laughs> so, Father Steve, over the years, I thank you very much for your friendship. You are a, a fantastic friend and, and somebody that I look up to and a confidant of mine and confident of many members of my family. And I appreciate and thank you for that. And thank you for the 24 years. We never, ever dreamed that we'd get you for 24 years when you got the job. No, thanks, Jim. And thanks, Phyllis. Thanks, Steve, very much. Okay, thank you, everyone. So let's get to the panelists' questions. Phyllis, you want to start us off? Well, I'll start maybe with a personal question because, you know, I've always admired Father Steve for his ethos and really, I think, just deep values. But I also know that you get that a lot of that from your parents. And I was fortunate to have met Father Steve, your father, who had a history in Alaska writing the Alaska State Constitution. And so I just wanted you to maybe say a few words about him and maybe his influence on you. Sure. So my dad's George Sundborg, and he got a degree in journalism from the University of Washington, met my mom because he was a reporter on the Hoquiam Washingtonian in Hoquiam, Washington. And they went to Alaska and he was a reporter. And then he was an editor of the Fairbanks Daily News Miner. And he was a great advocate for Alaska statehood, even when it wasn't very popular in Alaska. And his greatest accomplishment was being elected to one of the authors of the Alaska State Constitution, which they wrote in 1955. Alaska became a state in 1959. Then he served in, uh, as assistant to the senator from Alaska for 10 years in Washington, D.C., Ernest Greening. 
and then retired eventually out to Seattle. But his greatest accomplishment and greatest love was about Alaska and Alaskan statehood. He was a person of words as a journalist and a reporter. Very, very, very important for him was how you use words. And I think I get a lot of that from him. He was a great speaker, too. He had a lot of opportunities to do speaking, and I, and I picked that up from him. From my mother, my mother's Mary, and uh, I get my soul, my vocation, my faith, my heart from my mom. So it's a pretty good combination between my mom and my dad. Great question. Thanks, fellas. Thank you. Jim, you want to go next? Sure. The university is now about 130 years old. I started in 1891. I'm not going to ask you to see or say where you see the university being in 130 years, but you've been here for 24 years. If you were going to project out, how do you foresee the University of Seattle in 24 years, in the year 2045? Wow, what a question. Yeah, you got to look ahead. I know Costco looks ahead. Yeah, we look ahead too. And if you try to say what the age of Seattle University is, it's kind of like a 28-year-old in terms of its growth. Its best years, its midlife career is still ahead of it. We're still a relatively young university in terms of what we can become. I see that uh, Seattle University is going to become the independent university for the Seattle and Puget Sound metropolitan area and will grow into that sort of that stature in the course of the next 25 years in terms of what it becomes. I see it much more connected with the businesses, the foundations, the institutions, the agencies are right at the heart of the of the Seattle. So a lot of the future of Seattle University is going to be the future of what Seattle is itself and how it's going to develop. I see we're going to grow somewhat. We're now at about 7,300 students, probably be a 10,000 student university. You know, the city will take pride in its independent university at Seattle U. That's the direction I see it going. Confident it can get there. Steve Hooper. Yeah, thank you, Joe. Father, I want to ask a question about leadership. This is the leadership series and whatnot. So how would you define your leadership style, Father? And how do you think that has changed or needed to change over the 24 years you've been president at Seattle University? My leadership style is one of just really being assured that I always stay grounded in just who I am as a person, as a Jesuit, as a priest, as a Christian, as a person who prays and with the gifts that I have, and just really, you know, daily kind of regrounding myself or rebasing myself and getting my energy from that. And then just trying to be as accessible as possible to people, trying to show them who I am and not have any kind of a sort of a hidden reality to, to the person that I am. And I'm very, very steady. I mean, that's one of the things I have. I, you know, I just keep working at it. There's no, there's a reason why I'm finishing 24 years is I don't, I don't know if this answers when you ask the question, what do you have to do with stress? I'm, I'm very steady, Steve. So I'm steady in terms of who I am and how I apply myself and always trying to do the next thing forward. I think I, I see myself in leadership in kind of a small L way of, of engagement with people, relationship, influencing others, always trying to look for the next thing that you can do to improve somewhat what you're doing. And that's kind of my style. The reason I've changed is I think my first four or five years, I performed as a leader. I came after a great president, Father Bill Sullivan. I had not been in higher education leadership before that, as you were mentioning, Jim, and what in you know, your search committee for the president. I had a big jump to get to kind of how where I would be. I tried to be kind of the professional leader. And I found myself that was a difficult thing to do because it just wasn't me. And Jim, you may remember that after my first year, I had a heart attack and I came to you and you said, well, what are we going to do, Father Steve, that you don't ever have another one? Well, I haven't. 
And the secret on that was be who you are in your leadership and act out of your own depth. And that's that's what I try to do as leadership, kind of a personal sense of leader. So can I ask a follow-on question to that? Because I know a little bit about how you balance your life out. And I think for leaders on this call, it would be instructive to hear about other things that you do. I know you meditate, pray in the morning. I know you read everything. I know you love art. So could you talk a little bit about kind of your balance and what you do on a daily basis to replenish? Sure. I think the most important thing, and maybe people would have a hard time understanding, I live in a Jesuit community. Uh, right now, there's 17 of us, and you know there have been as many as uh, 30 over my time as 24 years here, and that's home base for me. And it's where you know I'm with 16, 17 others who are committed for life and being a Jesuit, and we support one another, and we worship together, we pray together, we have great conversations. We're all a little bit overly educated as Jesuits, and so we have great debates among ourselves, and that's a great source of sort of like I don't know being surrounded. I think everybody else. You know, you have your own families, you have your own children and grandchildren and and so forth. Mine is the Jesuit family, which is a secret, kind of a separate kind of reality about what I'm about. I'm actually an introverted person. And uh, I don't know, maybe more leaders are than people think. And I need to get alone. I need to get by myself. I love to go hiking. I love to go hike for four hours up into the Cascades between uh, North Bend and Snoqualmie Pass, take a trail and just go and let my mind go and I just love doing that. Every Saturday and Sunday, I walk around Green Lake. I think of it as my thinking pad. I just sort of let my, take my soul for a walk and let it sort of metabolize what the week was and free itself up for whatever is coming before. And I do take good time in the morning to not only to pray, but also to read poetry. I don't know. I came upon that about 15 years ago. And poetry is a great nurture for me. I don't know why. It kind of gets underneath the hard surface of what you do down to the nuances of life. It's a great solace for me. And, and those are the things that kind of help me. I am a reader. I keep track of the books that I read. And I think I, I've read uh, 85 pages uh, list of books. And there's about a dozen on each page. You can figure out what that adds up to. There's something about I think all great leaders are readers. Uh, and I think if you can look at our university and our presidents in the United States. And those have been great Presidents have been people who have been great readers. There's something about that that gives us intellectual curiosity, that gets us really motivated. So those are some of the things, nothing very fancy. That's kind of what I do in addition to being president. Jim, you want to go next? Sure. Father, it's almost always the case that people that are successful at what they do had some form of mentorship along the line. Could you identify somebody that was most influential in your life, was a great mentor for you and developed you? I can think of a couple of Jesuits that were for sure a couple of just wonderful Jesuit priests who helped me at critical moments. You know, maybe I'd be 10 years in the Jesuits or 20 years in the Jesuits. And Father Lemieux was someone who I didn't have that much opportunity to be with him. But I remember so clearly when I was 25 years old and he had finished his president at Seattle University and he was in Spokane. And one time we were taking a walk along kind of a country road there. And he said, you know, Steve, you could you could be a university a Jesuit. You could get a doctorate. You could be a dean. You could even be the president of a Jesuit university. It was the first time I'd ever been told by a Jesuit about what they saw I might be able to do individually or personally. And it was an extraordinary encouragement for me to come from a person as wonderful as Father Arby Lemieux. Those kinds of things of that encouragement over the years have been a great kind of a mentoring for me over these years. And Jim, I've said this otherwise in public, and so I can say it here. 
you've been a mentor for me. I mean, when I see the consistency of the way in which you go about the founding and the leadership of Costco and what your values are and sticking with those values and holding people accountable and, and looking towards the longer term, that's been a big, big influence on me too. So you're one of the people that have been a good mentor for me over these years. I try to be mentored to others. And I find that as I get older, people sort of, they turn and they just want a conversation about, you know, how do you do it? Mentoring is a good thing to pass along to the next people that are looking for it. Steve? Father, as a leader of any organization, there are always tough decisions that have to be made. So can you talk about one of the toughest decisions you had to make at Saddle U in your 24 years? And how did you get the university and your board to come along with whatever that tough decision was? Sure. I think the toughest decision that we had had to do with the attempt to unionize the faculty at Seattle University and the decision that we made to not allow that to happen because we hold to the principle that the faculty of the university hold and trust and carry out the religious mission of the university as well as its educational mission. We're a Catholic university and a Jesuit university, and we don't separate what the faculty's role is in role of that in terms of its religious purposes. Now that went against a lot of things. It goes against sort of a Catholic principle about fostering a unionization where it's appropriate. It goes against a lot in terms of what our, our region was about. And that was something that it took maybe six years of steady working on that and carrying that forward to be able to bring it to the result of where we are now. And it was very contentious. It was very criticized. It was uh, in the executive committee of the board, more than the whole board really had to be the group that was behind the affirmation of that and stay the course and you know keep moving that direction. That was a hard decision and it was a hard one to carry forward. And probably the toughest thing that, not so much the toughest to make, but the hardest to carry out maybe. You know, the decision to go to division one, that was a tough decision. I mean, people you know, don't realize what that is. You know, Division One athletics is a business as much as it's a sport. You got to put everything behind it when you go that way. You have to invest in it, invest in it. You have to have the facilities for it. You got to hire the right people for it. You have the kind of compliance you need to have for it. So getting the board of trustees to agree to going from, when we started, I was a division, we were Division Three, Division Three to Division Two to Division One, and to make that decision, that was a difficult decision too, hard decision. Phyllis? Well, so you have always prided yourself on being the student's president. What have been the major shifts in the character of the student body that you would identify over the last number of years? And, you know, maybe a current question, what gives you hope from our, you know, our young people as you see them? Thanks for asking the question, Phyllis. Is I, I get energy from being able to see students, say hello to students, say hello to every student I see on campus when I'm out going from one place to another, ask him a question, what class did you just come from? What are you doing over the weekend? Where are you from? How are your family? So we're just that connection. I guess that comes out of a sort of a priestly way of being a president and having that personal connection with students. And I, and I love that. It's been hard during COVID when the campus is nearly empty to not have that ordinary day-to-day -day kind of contact with the students. You know, the students are just wonderful. <laughs> They're so different. Last night I was going home from the office and I came by these trees that are above our quadrangle. You got two students there are in these hammocks. I don't know if you, you see these hammocks that these students swing in now in college campuses, about six students there, and they're just hanging out outside. It was a nice afternoon. They greeted and had a little chat with them. I said they would be a great picture on our recruiting brochure for Seattle University, swinging in a hammock at Seattle University, 
So I love that contact with the students. And there's something about them that doesn't change. What doesn't change is their courage. What doesn't change is their willingness to try. There doesn't change is their willing to, willingness to put themselves into situations that I think that as we grow older, we have a little bit uncomfortable being able to do, to engage in issues that are, that are not easy to engage in. They've got hope. They've got courage. They've got willingness to risk. And part of that is just youthfulness, and that is sort of their idealism. The biggest change is technology. Unquestionably, the biggest change is technology and its its impact on the students and how they learn and how they're connected and wanting the quick kind of response to anything that happens and the, the making of friends that was able to go on through the technology that we do have. And that has big, big impacts on students. I have a concern about the inability to be present to yourself in silence, inability to stop and not be distracted. Jesuit education is based on reflection and being able to really think from kind of a deep place within yourself. And I have a little bit of concern that students can be a little bit more distracted from that than they might otherwise be. But, you know, they're facing a world that I I have no idea what it's going to be like in 20 years. And they have really got to uh, know how to master that technology and use it for the right purposes. And so they are new and they're more socially involved than they were before. I mean, this is not a silent generation. This is an activist generation, at least the kind of students that our university attracts. Very, very vocal and very, very much wanting to be included. And every single one of them wanting to be seen and respected just exactly for who they are and their identity. That's a great quality of Seattle University as a Jesuit school of taking people for who they are. So that's grown up. The whole issues of identity and intersectionality and so forth, those are much, much more present with our students and much more their expectation of how they're treated and how they are in their university and with one another. Jim, you want to go next? Now, Father, you've, you've accomplished a lot, and I'm sure you're very proud of some of the things that happened. And Joe articulated some of the things that have happened since you became the president. But is there one thing that you can identify and reflect on and say, I wish I had gotten that done? Yeah, I wish I'd gotten done building an event center at Seattle University for a great basketball arena and a convocation center for the university. I worked hard to be able to get us to that. I really believe it's the missing piece that we need to have as a university because of the kind of university you are, the location of where we are. We can't be successful at being a Division I university. I don't think we can retain our alumni as well as we might. It's a critical piece in my mind about the future of Seattle University, and I and I worked hard to try to get us there. But there were other things that were as important as we came along. So we're just finishing the, the Center for Science Innovation, and thank you, Jim, for allowing us to name it for you and Janet. And I mean, that's probably more important than anything, of course, because that's the heart of the education when you've got computer science and biology and chemistry and the STEM sciences and health sciences in this region in this time. I mean, that had to be the number one thing that we did, and we're just bringing that to a conclusion. But I do regret that I wasn't able to take it across the finishing line in regard to that next step that I think the university will take and I think will necessarily take. Father, I assume you've impressed your successor with that thought. You bet I have. And he's finding everybody he talks to is, okay, I know that you want an event center, you know, so the word's out there. (laughs) Steve. Yeah, Father, when I was on the board, I remember we talked about the day when Seattle University would be led by a non-Jesuit. That day is happening. So how do you see the university being situated to ensure that the character and the values of a Jesuit Catholic university are going to continue when it's led by a non-Jesuit? 
Thanks for the question. You know, we've worked very, very hard at that. I think it may have been in my very first year, Steve, when you were on the board that I told the board that I thought I was the last Jesuit president at Seattle University. And that's come true. Right now, there are changes in seven Jesuit universities, and six of the seven who are stepping down as presidents are Jesuits, and six of the seven who are coming on are lay people. This is a transformational period right now of moving to lay leadership of Jesuit universities across the United States. It's an era that is that just has to come because the complications, the challenges, the financial realities, the political dimensions, the federal and governmental relationships of being the president of a university is just not going to be in the quiver of a Jesuit from their background and they're being able to handle that kind of thing. So it needs to move to people that have a different kind of a career development than the Jesuits themselves will likely have. So what we've done is we've probably developed maybe 400 people at Seattle University who are deeply knowledgeable about our Ignatian origins and our Jesuit purposes through a series of programs. One of them is an annual program with about 25 persons a year. It's probably in its 15th year that takes people through an in-depth engagement in what are the what's the vision and what are the foundations of Jesuit education. And so people are, are knowledgeable about that. They're enthusiastic about that, and they're very, very positive about continuing that. So that's the most important dimension for how Seattle University will continue to be Jesuit, is that strong lay leadership of doing that. My own view on this, and it's been my view for always, has been that I really think it's an enrichment of the Jesuit character of our university rather than any kind of a threat to it. Because I think lay people can pick up on that spirituality. They can make it their own. They can bring what their lives and their families are like from what their careers have been like, what their activities. Jesuits are kind of a small subset of humanity after all. And I think the lay kind of leadership will bring a much wider and richer context to what that Jesuit leadership will be. There'll always be a Jesuit university contingent of Jesuits here as a catalyst for the overall university. And that's very important. It has to be embodied in, in Jesuits as well as that wider group. But it's being handed off, but after a lot of formation towards that blade leadership of the university. And I'm very confident about it. And I'm really confident in, in knowing Eduardo Peñalvera, my successor, in terms of what his values are and his commitments around Jesuit education and Catholic education. Just totally confident and admiring of the direction that he's going to go. That's great. I'm happy to hear that you have that because I remember when we had those conversations at the board level and the beginning of this process 15, 16 years ago. So that's terrific. Yeah, it would come a long way in the development of that. Phyllis, you have a question? I want to ask you, you've had so many things that you have done. What are you most proud of? I mean, I'm going to have you narrow it down to one and why. Sure. The most proud is for um, community engagement in the Seattle University Youth Initiative. So Wow, we've got you know as good as any university in the United States, if not better than 95% of them, a community engagement initiative at this university that reaches out into our neighborhood and works with the public schools particularly, but also with the families and Yester Terrace. And that's now, it's about 10 years of the youth initiative since that was founded. We're able to engage as many as like 1,500 students in the course of a year and working in one way or another within that youth initiative, it's 115 square blocks that extends into the international district. And we're able to bring all of our different colleges and schools, whether it's nursing or education or business or law, criminal justice or whatever, into engagement in that whole. It's just a wonderful, wonderful engagement. And it keeps on developing and growing and finding its new path. But I'm very, very proud of that. And it's a signature thing now of Seattle University 
in terms of something distinctive about who we are that also expresses what our mission is. That's my proudest. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking on the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show. We have some questions from the audience. And by far, the most popular question is, Father Steve, what's going to happen next? Can you tell us? I'm a Jesuit, and so I'm under obedience. And my Jesuit provincial has told me he wants me to do three things. He wants me to take a full year off. He wants me to do whatever I want to do during that year. And he doesn't want me to think about when my next assignment is until I'm halfway through the year. So I'm going to obey him on that. And so I don't know what's there beyond the full year off. I'm looking forward to the break and what I'm able to do during that year. I'd like to spend some time uh, traveling. I'd like to spend some time with my brothers and sisters where they live. I'd like to go back to Italy where I spent eight, eight years of my life, my formation as a Jesuit. I'd like to visit the Holy Land. I've never been there. And I'd like to visit Ireland, which I've, where I've never been. But I don't know what might be next. But the one thing I've asked is that I be spared from any further administration. I've done 35 years straight of administration primarily because of 10 years or more before I became president of also being in administration as provincial and other things in the Jesuits. And I'm good at it, but uh, enough's enough. Underneath there, there's a priest and uh, he'd like to be able to do something that's not quite so much administration. So that's as much as I know. You know, I have had the dream about kind of going to another Jesuit university and putting in play for that university, fostering their Jesuit character as a university, because I think I know a lot about that. And there's things that I could do that, particularly maybe a Jesuit university that has very few Jesuits that can help with that. And I'd like to be I'd like to be called upon to maybe to bring some of my experience to another place that I've sort of learned here at Seattle U. That's just a hope. Great. Thank you, Father. OK, so here's another question we have from our audience which is, what have you noticed about what's needed for effective leadership, both remaining the same over the years and then becoming more or less important over time? You got to be who you are and you got to let people know who you are. People are not comfortable in leadership when they don't really know who the leader is. You have to let yourself be known for who you are. And I think that's a critical kind of a dimension of galvanizing or eliciting people in any kind of a common project that you're about. I think the thing that's changed so much is the need for transparency now is so different from what it has been before. I mean, nowadays, you have to be transparent in just so many more areas of leadership, financial transparency, you know, anything in terms of structures and HR kind of policies, everything needs to be much, much more transparent than it was before. It used to be that you could kind of lead and people put confidence in you and they kind of trust you and that was okay. And now they want to know. They want you to be much more transparent about everything that you do. And I think that's, that's a huge difference. Great. Thank you, Father. Next question would be, what can leaders do to build the commitment of the community to the shared purpose of an organization like Seattle U, both leaders at the very top and leaders at other levels of the organization? You have to listen to people. Jim, you may recall that when you were chair and you were devising the mission statement for Seattle U, we had an eight page single space mission statement and you and the board asked for a one sentence mission statement and I think I consulted with 32 different groups I'd just call with about eight of them then I'd bring it back to the board and they'd say not quite right father try again and I'd go consult with another eight groups and gradually we came to a common mission that was the mission of the university the faculty staff the board of trustees 
the alumni, the people that supported us. And it was the result of a long process of listening and discernment and being willing to keep on working until we had a common vision. So I think part of the answer to that is you can't bring people into a common endeavor unless you can have a common vision. And you can't get to that common vision unless you really let a lot of people in on that. And then you keep on trying to refine what that vision is until it does grasp. We have a vision that we promulgated that, Jim, in, in January of 2003. So we did that 18 years ago. That's the, the mission that we live by now. And uh, people still see it's full of energy and it, it articulates who we are. And so it's a mission that works for this university and it's brought about a lot of common endeavor. There's no substitute for as complex an organization as Seattle U where you have 1,758 faculty and staff and you have 7,300 students and you have 90,000 alumni and so forth and so on. There's no substitute for a real strong mission that's commonly held. That doesn't do all of it, but it, without that, I don't know how far you do get without it. It has to be a real mission. It can't be a slogan. It's got to be real for who you are. And then you have to find all the ways in which you make that concrete and implement that and update that in terms of your planning for the university. And that's where you, you try to bring on people. And in a university, there's a different sort of a dynamic in terms of shared governance. I mean, everything that happens in university nowadays, there has to be a voice, a very strong voice of the faculty, but also the staff and even now of, of the students in regard to the development of the university. So bringing that, uh, that shared governance takes a lot of work to bring it aboard. And then uh, one more question. You were asked, you know, what was the most difficult decision you made? This question is, what do you feel the most risky decision was that you made as leader of Seattle U? How did it turn out? And would you have done anything differently with the benefit of hindsight? I think the decision on D1 was risky. We're about two-thirds of the way to the realization of what we wanted to accomplish through that. We're not yet there. What was the payout for why we did that? So it's not yet proven that that risk was right and that it's going to succeed, but we're getting closer towards it. So that was a risky decision. I think another one is that, and I know Phyllis and Jim and, and Steve would see this, you don't go out and announce a $275 million campaign without having some idea that you're going to be able to pull it off. I mean, you, you put yourself out there. <laughs> we just know finishing a construction project, a $153 million project. Well, you don't undertake that and, you know, develop it and develop the architecture for it in the beginning of the construction without knowing that you're going to get the philanthropic support to be able to make that happen. So that's always a risk. That's twice there were big risks in, in my presidency of the starting of two campaigns, one of them $150 million campaign, and we raised $167 million. And this campaign, a uh, 275 million and we're at 295 now. So we've done very well. And by the way, Jim, <laughs> I think we have proven indeed that I can raise a bit of money. I'll tell you a quick story on that. As I was talking to Linda Hansen, who was the vice president of university advancement after one, one month in the job. And she says, Father Steve, can I tell you something personal? I said, sure, Linda. She says, well, you don't know anything about fundraising, but boy, are you teachable. And that was within the first month of my being president. And she's proven right. I didn't know anything about it. You guys took a big risk and uh, I was teachable. So that's a huge risk, sticking your neck out. And, and anybody can set a goal, but you have to set the goal that you can achieve. And that is not easy to accomplish. Great. Well, Father, you've made it through the Q&A. So congratulations on that.
yeah. gave me such good friends to ask the questions. You know, they're not gonna they're not gonna put me on the spot. Oh no, this is a tough crowd. Tough crowd. So now we have a special announcement that we want to make, and it's honoring you, Father Steve, and I'm going to turn it over to Phyllis Campbell to go first. Phyllis? Well, thanks. And I know Steve Hooper and Jim Senegal want to say a few words too. But again, Father Steve, thank you. This last session was so inspirational. I learned something from you every time I get to talk to you. So thank you. And I'm sure our audience feels the same. Well, I do want to say this is a celebration tonight as well as a Dean's Forum on Leadership, but I really have to say this is really tied to something that's important to you, Father Steve. And when you talked about the Seattle University Youth Initiative being your proudest accomplishment, I would have expected you would have said that. So there's a program that's an adjunct to that. And when we ask you what would be a lasting legacy that you would like to have in your honor, you did mention the ramp up program. And so I want to let people know what that is and what we've decided to do to honor your legacy. So the ramp up program really is a program. I'm not going to go through the acronym, but it basically, in short, is a program that serves underserved small businesses within the trade area that the Seattle University Youth Initiative serves. So what it does is the program takes school students from the Albers School of Business. And I think Joe specifically from the Albers School of Innovation and Entrepreneurship and says, you know, students are going to give you an education on how to work with small business, particularly underserved minority-owned business, how to give them resources, how to counsel, how to help scale these businesses up. So in its first several years of its infancy, the program has helped six great businesses, Black-owned businesses in the Central District of Seattle not only to be successful, but to leverage capital and to leverage more grants and loans in order to grow. So if you look at a program like that, it is basically what Father Steve earlier, it's very values-based, it's aligned with the mission of the university. And so when I talked to Joe about it and we said, you know, could we raise, I think we originally said $100,000, we were pretty modest in the goals and I said to Joe, you know, we need to raise a lot more so we can raise a, an amount for an endowment. And I called Jim Senegal first and he said, let's go for it. And then we got a hold of Steve Hooper and he said, absolutely, I'm in. So we ended up raising an endowment of 400000 in a very short period of time by calling most of the former speakers of this Albers School speaker series and everybody Almost 100% of the folks that Jim and I and Steve contacted said yes. So I'm proud to announce that tonight we are announcing the Sunborg Endowment for Business and Social Impact, which will be tied to this ramp program, up program. And with this, we're hoping to spin off enough to support the staff of this program so that more businesses can be served, not just in the Central District, but in South Seattle as well with an emphasis on minority-owned business. So, Father Steve, we are so pleased that you chose this program. We are so pleased that a number of donors, including a number on this call, raised their hand and said, absolutely, we're in, and we feel that this would be something worth supporting to keep your legacy and really your values alive through support. So in any event, I just want to say thank you for giving us permission to do this. I think the small businesses of the future, thank you. And, you know, we're really pleased that we can announce this tonight. So I'm going to ask Jim and Steve, if you want to make a few comments, and then I also have kind of a 
plea to continue to fund this program after you two say a few words. So, Jim, you want to go first? I remember he gave a talk at the, we were at an event at Canton Hall and Father Steve spoke. It was the end of his first year and he was commenting about the things that had he had accomplished and the things that he had learned during the year. He was so proud of everything. And of course, he mentioned that he followed a, a Jesuit that had quite a legacy relative to achievement. But he said he was so happy with what everything had accomplished. And he said, it almost makes up for the 500 times I've been called Father Sullivan. <laughs> I just want to say, Father, that you're going to have a legacy of your own. And I know legacy is a very un-Jesuit type concept, but you will have a legacy for everything that you've accomplished here. Uh, thanks. Yeah. Thank you very much for on part of all of us and part of the community. Thanks, Jim. Yeah, Father, it's very hard to follow Phyllis and Jim and their comments about what you have done for the university and also for just Seattle and also for our family. So I just want to thank you for 24 years. Thank you for picking this area for us to support. When I got the call from Joe and Phyllis and Jim, I was immediately supportive of it because I think it ties into, as Phyllis said, who you are as a person what your values are, and it also ties into what's needed right now in our community. It's just a perfect thing for us to be doing, and I was so honored to be able to do this, and I've been looking forward to doing something to help honor your name in the Seattle area, and for me, this was just the ideal thing to be doing with. So I do hope this is not uh, kind of a goodbye, but uh, see you the next time in your next round, if you will. But you've meant an awful lot to the university, to the Seattle area, and also to our family. So thank you for all you've done for us, Father. Phyllis and Jim and, and Steve, I mean, this is the right purpose of Seattle University. It's in the middle of what our mission is. It's the right time for it, too. So, gosh, I couldn't be happier about anything other than this kind of a purpose. So thanks very much on that. Well, you're very welcome. And it was certainly our privilege and just talking to the number of donors who were just delighted to be able to contribute. It really made us feel this was the right thing, too. So I just want to urge anyone who's on this call who hasn't had a chance to donate. I know, Joe, maybe you can send out a link or our team can send out a link, but it's seattle.edu slash giving slash honoring Father Steve with a couple of punctuation points in there, but just go on the Seattle U, the slash giving website. And I know that we would love to see more donations. And I know Father Steve would be very honored if you wanted to add your name to the list of donors. So Joe, back to you. Thank you so much, Phyllis and Jim and Steve. This is obviously great news for a great program. It's a tremendous way to engage our students in the community and not just serve the community, but also learn a lot in the process. So it's been really successful and great to see how the program has progressed over time. Father Steve, would you like to make a few words here near the end? Yeah, I would. You know, this is, it is something else. When I look back at the chairs of our board of trustees, so uh, Jim and Phyllis and Steve were three of the the seven chairs that I worked with. And I can't think of uh, seven better people that I worked with and helped guide at the university. And the board of trustees is often not as, as seen as you know the rest of the university in terms of its president and its faculty and so forth. But the boards of trustees are critical and their chairs are, are just really, really, they put in such generous service. And so I'm really grateful to Jim and to Phyllis and to Steve for their leadership. And your choice of them, Joe, for this evening to be able to ask the questions is just kind of like the icing on the cake. It's just great to be able to be 
back. I want to have a program where I could ask them some questions and tell a few stories about my times with them and what I remember too. That would be fun, but I hope there will be those opportunities. So thank you so much for this evening. Thank you, Joe, for your leadership of Albert School of Business and Economics. You do a wonderful job. You have a great school, a great faculty, and it shows itself every day at Seattle University. So I'm very, very grateful. Thanks. Well, thank you, Father. I'm very happy to be the person that gets the last word today and to have the opportunity to thank you for everything you've done for the university and for the Albers School over the last 24 years. We could not ask for a more authentic, more dedicated, more humble leader than you. And I'm sure I can speak for many others who've had the opportunity to work with you. That has been a real privilege to be able to do so. It's true we are all looking forward to the arrival of our new president, Eduardo Peñonbert. But that does not mean we are not going to miss you, Father Steve, so please remember that. Thank you so much. And thank you to all of our panelists, Jim Sinegal, Phyllis Campbell, Steve Hooper. And thank you, our audience, for joining us. I hope you have found this to be a very interesting discussion to top off Father Steve's 24 years as our president. You've been listening to The Leadership Playbook the podcast edition of the Albers Executive Speaker Series at Seattle University. If you enjoyed what you heard today, consider telling a friend and give us a good rating on iTunes. You can subscribe to our show for free on your favorite podcast app or find us online at leadershipplaybook.org. Find out who our next guests are by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Joe Phillips, the Dean of the Albers School of Business and Economics. Thanks for listening. Earn your MBA or MSBA on your own schedule while you keep your job and enjoy life. Dive into an immersive online learning experience that prepares you for effective management and flexes around your full-time commitments. Enroll at Seattle University's Albers School of Business and Economics. Apply by June 7th to start classes this summer or by September 6th to start in the fall. Find out more at albersonline.seattleu.edu.